Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Demasugu and this, this folks, is episode number 100. Now to everyone who's ever listened to the show, ever interacted with us via social media, recommended the podcast to other people, made an audio contribution or emailed a comment or question. Maybe you've been featured as a guest, perhaps you've attended one of our live events or tuned into a live stream on Facebook or even come on board as a podcast or event sponsor. We salute you. Thank you so much for being an integral part of this uh, growing community of individuals who are crazy passionate about Africa's tech ecosystem and all the wonderful things that truly make this continent a great place to live and grow. And uh, so to celebrate this milestone, we're publishing the live podcast recording that we taped at the African Tech Roundup live state of the startup event that we hosted a couple of weeks ago. Now you'll recall that I facilitated a lively panel discussion that featured special guests Andres Chetty, who's the Managing Director of Trace Mobile, Dominique Collett, Senior Investment Executive at Rand Merchant Investments, as well as at AlphaCode, uh, Ben White, who's the founder and CEO of VC for Africa, as well as the co-founder of the African Business Angels Network, and finally, Daniel Rubenstein, the co-founder of My Treasury. And so the panel discussion is jam-packed with uh, juicy tidbits and useful insights, and so we'll jump straight into it. Do enjoy. The fun starts right now. All right, so let's do this. So Ben, you know, according to a report that you put out, and by you I mean uh, VC for Africa, right? Um, you know, you, you did this report that was analyzing the startup investment climate on the continent, and there are quite a few reports that come out this year, not just from you guys, all of them pointing to what seems to be uh, a, an upward trend in terms of what's being invested in startups on the continent. My question to you really is, how excited should we be by information like this in the context of how much still there is to be done, and also in the context of you know, everything you've observed since founding VC for Africa and having eyes on the ecosystem in, in, in terms of all the deals that are being made? How, how important is this news? And so VC for Africa, right, is a, is a membership-driven uh, network. There's 40,000 members in 159 countries. And so as an organization, what we do is we reach out to our members to try and understand what they're doing. Uh, you know, how are you, you know, how is it trying to grow your business? And as an investor, how is it uh, going out making investments? What's happening? Are you making progress? Is it getting easier? What are your, you know, the, what are the opportunities and what are the challenges? So we can only say something about, our membership and what our members are doing. And we can only say something about what the members are telling us. So not all the members participate and disclose what is actually happening. Um, but so it, indeed, it was 27 million in, in 2014, but those, you know, the amount raised to 73 million, uh, in 2015. Wow. Uh, and that was something like 106 transactions that happened in 26 African markets where the average deal size was around 300,000. Uh, so we saw significant growth between 2014 2015 we're currently finishing up the analysis for 2016 um, where uh, you know we're definitely interested in figuring out okay is this an ongoing trend and are we going to see growth so the top line figures can be distracting right it's like oh well they were you know startups in the african space raised you know 
uh, I don't know, uh, 200 million uh, last year total, maybe for the entire continent. Is that is that interesting? Does that say anything? For me, not so much. What's actually really interesting is to look at a per venture basis. How are the companies growing? And there, we very clearly see that you know the turnover is increasing year to year. And not only is the turnover growing, but also the team size. So for example, in 2014, the average team size was like 3.7. We've seen those same companies grow to 8.9. So you're seeing real sort of business growth um, uh, across the, the, the index of, of companies. And I think that's, uh, that's really what, what we care about and what we should focus on. And so Dom, two major uh, fintech deals have been done in South Africa recently. So that will obviously add to the statistics that Ben has indicated or spoken about so far. Uh, for 2016, 2017. Um, one of them actually, you know, called uh, Alpha Code Home. One of them, Yoko, uh, recently completing their Series A. Uh, Kona being involved there. Velocity Capital of Holland also being involved there. And then more recently, uh, also, also recently, is that little company you were involved in, Time. Well, uh, they've come back and um, word is Patrice Motsepe is uh, African uh, Rainbow Capital will be investing or at least buying 10% of that business. And now there's an argument being made for what seems to be the sleepy approach of institutional investors in terms of snapping up the opportunity that should or does appear should, you know, should interest them first before it goes overseas looking for interest and then come back. And, and, and in, in some cases, as in the case of time, then they, have, they come back and obviously sell themselves back at a premium. What do, you, what do you make of that criticism as someone, obviously, who's doing quite a lot you know, for, for making sure that's not the case, but also someone who, in, in many respects, represents the establishment? Sure. So I think the first thing I'd like to say is that I think when international money comes into the fintech space in South Africa, I think it's a great story. I think the fact that the sector is um, gaining momentum with international community is wonderful for the ecosystem. And I think it's a positive story for South Africa. I think those two deals were very specific. Um, if we look at the Yoko deal, um, Corner is a phenomenal fund. Monica Brand, who heads it up, is a world-class investor. I have a lot of respect for her. They also have a, quite a strong social impact um, mandate. So I think you've also got to understand the context of that, how a social impact fund thinks about it. They've got a slightly different return profile. Um, and obviously, with regards to ARC Capital and Time, that also has its own angle because there's obviously a BE impact um, that has to be considered. So those two deals have very specific considerations. We've also seen a lot of institutional money coming into other fintechs. So for example, Standard Bank bought SnapScan. So that's an example of an institutional of institutional money going into startups. We've also seen Rainfin complete a deal recently, which was also a BE shareholder locally. So I think, yes, we're seeing international money, but we are seeing local money and institutions getting into the space. I mean, we've obviously known that Old Mutual was involved in 22.7. We've seen Closer to Home here, Rand Merchant Investments investing into businesses like Merchant Capital, and we continue to investigate into the space. So I think... You know, you can look at it one way and you can look at two isolated deals, but I think you've got to look at the whole ecosystem and how everyone is thinking about it. Because I think for every international deal, we can also highlight how many South African deals are happening and how the institutions are getting their head around it. And I want to come back to that a little later on. Um, give us a sense of, you know, how many 
uh, fintech startups have come through your doors, how many you've invested in. And let's talk about like some of the considerations and perhaps some of the things we take for granted in, in terms of investability and in terms of what you might be looking for, not just as an institutional investor, but as an investor period and maybe where we might not be all the way there as an ecosystem or in terms of what's coming out the pipeline. So um, just so you guys understand, I'm, I'm picking some trending issues uh, from, you know, what's been trending really as we've done the show. And I'm, and I'm picking specific questions to, to get the conversation going with, with our panelists here to give us a sense of, you know, what's trending in their world as well as, you know, what their, what their thoughts of what's trending out there is as well. So I've got a specific question for you, uh, Indresen. Uh, you know, you're, you're the head of mobile at, uh, at Trace Digital. And I, and I mentioned earlier that it's easily the, the startup within what's crazily still a startup in a way, right? So you're the startup within a startup. And I think it's quite interesting how uh, how much coverage, say, mobile gets on the continent and how excited we get. I mean, if there's a PowerPoint presentation anywhere, at GEC or anywhere else, to be honest, then I'm not giving them a shout-out. If it doesn't say something about mobile penetration on the African continent, well, I don't know. <laughs> if especially, so it's, it's just become this thing where we're doing it so much better than everyone else. The people are crazy for it. Like, Africa is going nuts for mobile. Except, like, we don't really think about, you know, you know smartphone penetration in context to say, feature phone penetration. And in context, let's talk about uh, consumption habits and how, from a random sense point of view, from an, from an addressable opportunity point of view, what is the opportunity in as far as mobile penetration on the continent, as far as you guys look at it at Trace? The sales of smartphones is, all, is outstripping the sales of feature phones that we know for a fact. Uh, smartphone sale pen, well, smartphone penetration in South Africa has already reached the one third mark. And we can assume that it's between the 40, uh, 35% to 45% mark in terms of where we are today. But hang on. We, smartphone's also a loose concept, right? We're talking anything yeah. that'll let you have WhatsApp or. Correct. Okay. So it's not um, necessarily iPhones or high end Android devices, right? Correct. So, okay. I mean, most of your, let's say most of your devices today are Android operating system. Right. So they don't necessarily have to be your high-end smartphones. There are phones that are feature phones but have the f ability to use the WhatsApp feature or any other social media feature, including internet opportunity. I mean, if everybody uses smartphones, right, uh, the mobile digital environment will change drastically, right? That will mean that consumers will have access to or revolutionary ways to do business, uh, transact, connect, and then to be entertained as well. And we know that, I mean, in terms of where I fit in and, and where Trace fits in and, and the market that we're trying to target, which is specifically the youth market between the ages of 16 and 24, would you overlap to 35? And they consume a lot of data. And in order to push a lot of data, you need to have exclusive content. Um, you know, everybody today has content. There's many content companies out there. Even the networks are doing content themselves, which that's not their core business. But because content is a key driver for data, revenue, that is where everybody is moving. Are you speaking to a sense of relevance in a sense? In yeah. a sense that um, I, I think the winners in the space have to understand the market, the 100%. limitations of that market in terms of accessing anything from the internet to content in your case. 100%. To, yeah, to understanding yeah. what they actually want in terms of taste. Correct. If, okay. you, if you don't know what you... You know, the days of actually the networks creating products for the consumer by believing they know what the consumer wants is 
those days are gone. It's now what the consu- it's now what you need to create is what the consumer wants that you have to build, irrespective of whether you believe in it or not. And so isn't that the mindset driving successful fintech startups as well? Where, look, a great idea. I mean, we all have, we all have mobile payments or, you know what I mean? And, and the, the world thinks of things like, you know, Stripe or, you know, I don't know what you think of when you think fintech and something cool and snazzy. Um, but when you think about it in the context of, of Africa, you can't approach it willy-nilly. You actually have to think about, you know, what's actually going to work, what's actually going to be adopted, what might need to roll out in the interim before the future arrives, that kind of thing. Are those the kind of discussions you have, Adam, when you guys think about fintech and innovation on the continent? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the word fintech, I mean, a lot of people say, what does it actually mean? And in, in my mind, really, it is, how does technology enable the delivery of financial services? Um, and I think what we see a lot of is that some of these businesses really just focus on the tech. And they really just focus on the product. And really what it is about is saying, how can we leverage, you know, new age technology to make financial services more accessible, to deliver a really beautiful customer experience? Um, And a business is more than just a product. You know, a business is all about, do you understand your customer? Can you get your product to the customer? And particularly in financial services, a lot of the innovation is really around distribution. And a lot of the innovation is around engaging your customer and particularly in the African context, educating your customer. Because we have, um, you know, a, a generation of, of consumers who've never really experienced financial services. And that's where I think technology is so exciting and particularly smartphones. Because you can, it's such a rich interface that you can really explain a product. It can, you, and you can explain the relevance of a product in a really beautiful interface. So it's about saying, you know, if you spend too much time just working out the best features and making it really sexy and cool, but you don't actually understand if it's actually relevant to a customer and whether a customer is going to use it and testing it with a customer, you can actually have a really basic product that customers love. Um, I.e. Impesa. Exactly. And also roll out something that you think will work here. Yes. In South Africa. By here, I mean in South Africa. And, I mean, you were on the show when, you know, when it totally bombed. <laughs> it was, yeah, <laughs> it was. If you haven't w- listened to that episode, you need to go catch Dom, like, unpacking that situation and why it didn't work in South Africa. So, again, like, to your point, um, what's really a, a pretty uh, humble, I, that's a nice word, but a really, you know, meager product, getting the job done and being really well-loved and adopted, right? And I think, what, I mean, one of the best examples I've seen of minimum viable product, I mean, we all throw these terms out there, but for example... MVP. MVP. Um, you know, there's a, a digital bank in the U.S. called Simple, which has subsequently been acquired by BBVA. But really how those guys got the funding for the business was that they put up a website. So they did a really beautiful design, and they said... If your bank looked like this and delivered services that looked like this, would you sign up? And on the back of that, they got tens of thousands of sign-ups. They hadn't built anything. They'd spent money on building a website. Maybe we'll need to do something about all this interest we've (laughs) created here. Okay. But what was amazing about that is on the back of that, they engaged their customers, they figured out what customers want, and they got customers saying, I love your product. It's what they always say in that lean startup. They got their cookie monsters. And that was enough for an investment proposal. Whereas I see a lot of businesses who come in here and they've spent thousands, millions on designing a product that no one wants because they didn't go test it with customers. And that is the world of fintech. And so here's an easy question for you, Daniel Rubenstein. <laughs> Being that you've just, uh, uh, you're involved in a startup called My Treasury, how much of what Dom has just said have you applied to, uh, you know, 
basically formulating a thesis for what you are trying to do with your startup. And this will be a perfect segue into my next question, which I want you all to think about in terms of, um, in, in the case of you being a startup 2.0, I'd like to say, uh, being that you've started a successful business, listed it. Who does that? I mean, listing a business is such a mission, and it also says something about the scale uh, and viability of a business. Scale, not at just listing it, but selling it in a, in a very traditional space, right? So this is context. So in a very traditional space, and now moving into a very non-traditional space relative to, to Africa and, and what traditional money tends to favor, you're going for a fintech startup. So given all that, how much of what Dom has just said have you factored into, hey, this looks like a really good idea, I ought to back? Basically, when I've thought about a business or started something, it's, it's always been out of a, a need. So if you look at my treasury, after I sold that property business, um, first time in my life I ever had money hit the bank account. It was like... Well, it couldn't have been the first time. Uh, no, no, no. So, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> no, it, was, it was the first time oh, that right. I could actually uh, pay off my overdraft and actually have oh, some money in my bank account. Yeah. So, so that's... I mean, you, you got the world watching here going, oh, yeah, this guy. Oh, yeah, this guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. This guy. Okay, so... <laughs> all right, all right, cool. So, so the idea is, is that You've got to find a need. And, and I, and I think that, you know, to what Dom says, you know, it can be so simple. Like, um, my treasury interest rates, you know, where do I, where do I find the best rate? And, and how do I cut through all the jargon? And how do I actually simplify, simplify this, you know, all, all this information that's being thrown at me? Yeah. And, uh, which is what my treasury does, right? Exactly. So it's almost like a, uh, do I not call it a Google for financial information? Y- yes, at the, except detailed in. It's, it's specific at the moment, but it is going to be broader. But it's specific to interest rates at the moment. So you got some money, thousand rand. You want to see where which bank's going to give you the best rate. Banks obviously don't like that because they make their money off um, basically inefficiencies in that market. And of course, having a monopoly on the knowledge. Uh, yeah, and they okay. hold all the cards. Right. So, so something so simple. As, as just aggregating those rates and giving you the best, um, product for your inputs. Okay. So simple. How old are you? How much money do you have to save? And how long do you want to, the money to be tied up for? And, and just those inputs, um, you know, we've got an algorithm back end and those inputs spit out a, a and this is to say that you're speaking to a need you've identified, a pain exactly. point with a real, with a real, uh, a solution to a real pain point. Yeah, and, and you you can't believe how many people. Doesn't matter if it's five hundred rand or a hundred million rand. You know, don't want to be screwed. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so tell me, so tell me what kind of traction you're seeing with what's really again in this in the to take the example you took quite a basic interface, right? Yeah. So I mean, at one glance you're thinking, come on. Yeah. This can't be a real thing. Yeah. Then you then you know we get to speaking to you and we realize this is actually a serious business with like the potential to scale significantly. So what are we seeing in terms of this basic concept when you go visit it? And go check it out, mytreasury.co.za, um, am I right? Correct. Okay, yeah. so go check it out and, and you'll see what I mean. So w- what sort of traction are you have you enjoyed so far? So we've had, um, I don't know the stats exactly. Yeah. My co-founders are sitting there. They, they're very technical. Uh, Can you give us a shout real quick, just an indication? A lot. A lot. <laughs> 
look who's hiding information now. <laughs> Correct answer. <laughs> right? Right. So, so, so we've had. Let's really just say it's fair to say, suffice it to say, it's it's significant traction for what's a relatively simple idea, well executed. To be honest, I've been quite surprised. Okay, yeah. and it takes a lot to surprise me. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, it's, uh... So, uh, to my next question, and uh, any of you can take this. And now we're in the season where I want to talk about this is what we're here for: the state of the startup. We want to give people a window into what starting up on the African continent is like from a you know from a founding perspective, from a growth perspective, uh, from a, a funding perspective. Let's give the world a sense of what it must be like to start up in in Africa. And and Ben, I'll probably start with you because I have this theory, and I want to try it on all of you. Uh, this idea that um, we've, we're at the perfect intersection on the continent where survival and, and need really intersect with this unprecedented growth in technological innovation, right? And a very few places in the world, even in other parts of the developing world where that's the case as it is here. And I believe like winning ideas and, and correct me if I'm wrong, winning ideas uh, from a founding perspective, funding perspective, growth perspective, are hybrids that play really well in that intersection. Tell me if that's if if that's uh, something you might have observed. Say, crunching all the data you guys have over at VCF for Africa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, the, it's still early. We're still trying to look into uh, you know, in, in trying to understand what exactly is happening. But one of the theses that we're we're developing at the moment is that. You know, it, it, say two years ago, three years ago, you saw a lot of technology because technology was cool. Yeah. And so people were just building stuff because they were like, wow, look, we could actually do something. Pokemon Go, anybody? <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Okay. It was a bunch yeah. of experimentation and people were building stuff that wasn't always relevant. There wasn't always a user out there that, you know, was what that had that need or, or it wasn't getting deep enough it was cool. into tapping into primary needs. Yeah. And, and what we're seeing right now, for example, is in 2016, uh, this uptick in, in agriculture, agriculture-related businesses. And what we see happening there is essentially technology is now starting to go into these more traditional sectors, agriculture, education, and healthcare. So people are starting to say, well, yeah, we've got all these you know, awesome tools, but they really become relevant and they really have meaning and purpose when we start addressing, you know, questions that we're, we're, we're grappling with in, in a sector like agriculture, which is very traditional, but is also continues to be the most important sector across the continent. Yeah. So, so this is, I think, an absolute shift in, in focus from within the entrepreneurial community and then the, yeah, the investor community responding to that. And I feel like sometimes that distinction uh, in terms of what's important and what matters in a real sense for the warm and feely social capitalists like me and also from a, a real, you know, business sense, I think sometimes gets lost in, in how Africa is thought about in, in what's, in, in what's considered viable on the continent. And I want to throw it over to Andresen because you're again a startup, you're heading up a startup within a startup and uh, for all intents and purposes, Trace has grown an incredible business, right? Um, incredible story uh, that um, Olivia Lauchet has been a part of. And now, you know, by extension, you're now a part of. Uh, what, how, how do you grapple with being a hybrid or, or, or the necessity of being a hybrid in the context of media, for example? The, no, the notion that we're not all the way to the future yet. So cable is still a thing. Our traditional channels are still a thing. I mean, radio, which I know you guys are big in, you know, cable, television, uh, terrestrial television. Um, you guys are also, you know, traditional viewing options that, you know, have made 
solid money for the business. But Olivier now realizing that if we don't adapt, if we don't create a hybrid model that allows us to, to sort of clean up as we go along, we're, going, we're not going to survive the future. How does that thinking impact your strategy at, say, Trace Mobile? Okay, so we know that normal traditional media served through broadcasting mediums is, let's not, saying, let's not use the term dying. Um, <laughs> let's just say dying. Let's, let's just <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Let's just say the, the growth is slow, right? It's, yes, um, gr- growth is slowing. Gr- growth is slowing let's down. Let's be PC, okay. Uh, and, and that's the reason why the likes of Netflix and Showmax and all the digital types of broadcasting companies are, are, are bringing these digital services out there because mobile is the way to go, right? Uh, if, you look in, if you look at Netflix, biggest subscriber base in the world, all right? I think uh, they've just recently eclipsed their cable business in the U.S. Uh, or they're near, they're, yeah. they're, they're about, so yes. Okay, so Nespers. Showmax with DSTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, why the change from DSTV when you've got 5 million customers in South Africa or DSTV being the monopoly in South Africa from a paid TV channel point of view? Why go into the mobile space? Because everybody's moving into the mobile space. Mm-hmm. So Shout out, by the way, to the other smaller players as well, which, no, you, which include which, you, yes. but Iroko, Quest, which is not exactly a tiny player. Correct. But I mean, there are lots of players who, for me, more adequately fit the title of startup in this space. But to your point, yes. Correct. So mobile's growing and we have to change. And, and we looked at it from a, from a youth point of view. The youth don't watch TV, right? They're, more, they're, they're 24-7 on their phones. The, the first thing they do in the morning is look at the phone. The last thing they do at night is look at the phone. Right. They watch all content. So it makes sense phone. to be on TV. No, of course not. <laughs> it makes of sense. course not. It makes sense. Sorry, I'm just helping this along. Phone. <laughs> in case you weren't, in case you weren't uh, catching it. So that's the route that, that we as Trace decided to move on. Yeah. We've creating our own VOD platform as well, right? Uh, focusing purely on urban content, right? Which is which is a very niche content uh, for a specific market. So that's a route that we decided to take as well, uh, from a from a digital led perspective. Okay, so strategically, you're chasing niche. And by the way, you're cleaning these guys. I looked it up. These guys are cleaning up. Um, you're doing even better than Red Bull TV. You're doing a lot. You're doing a lot better than a lot of people who who are making very big plays for the mobile viewers that you might be trying to go for as well. Correct. So Red Bull, Red Bull was in the country a few years ago. Um, they've terminated that uh, deal with one of the operators because uh, it really didn't work out for them. They were a can business that really didn't focus on mobile. They just licensed their name. Wow. Uh, they pushed a lot of Sorry, can we just pause on that? Sure. I think that's a teachable moment, right? Copy and paste. Guys, Africa is not a country. Yeah. To those of you watching us here, Africa is not a country. <laughs> it's not a cut. Don't cut. Don't bring your Red Bull here, Red Bull TV here, and think you'll just enjoy. Mm-hmm. Teachable moment. Teachable moment. Okay, so so also, I mean, yeah. Red Bull gotta start something. Yeah, like yeah. you need to know who you're speaking to and start something. Okay, carry on, please. So, so Sorry, Red Bull just don't mind me. <laughs> Red Bull brought a lot of niche content specifically for extreme sport, and we're not a country that has a lot of extreme sport. We're not. We're a country that has, and, and our passion points on music, it's, it's sport. Culture. Uh, in terms of soccer and yeah. rugby and so forth. We're it's curious culture. people. We don't do skateboarding. We don't do those type of skiing. You're going to get hurt. Like we don't get, yeah, yeah. We're too fragile. Yeah, I mean, what's the fun so, in that? Okay, so now we're going to get letters now. People are like, hey, we bungee jump in Africa. We know. We know some of you jump from planes, which is cool. Good for you. Okay. So cool. that really didn't work out because that was their content focus, right? 
Um, so yes, they terminated the agreement in South Africa. They had a few hundred thousand customers, but hey, that was it. Um, then you had other branded resellers in the market uh, with our local soccer clubs, church groups, and so forth. Didn't work because nobody really invested into it. Nobody really took the time to go. Okay, we're launching a soccer branded, uh, you know, mobile service. What's next? Do we just launch it and leave it, or do we launch it and maintain it and make sure that also isn't it right important content? where where you launch it? So even the partnerships with the networks, Correct. which network, um, basically the path to that viewer, Correct. has to be well thought out. It's not just a matter of I got great content. You know, uh, which is which is something I feel like Quest is doing or thinking about a little more than perhaps other people. And I think the folks at Showmax might look at a Quest, for example, thinking, hmm, this might be something because they've got access to this fiber footprint through their sister company, Liquid Telecoms. They've potentially got access to to Econet's footprint, you know, in terms of like getting on those phones quite easily, uh, onto subscribers' phones quite easily. So it's a, something I want to come back to. I want to think, I want us to, I want us to unpack that a little more if we get the chance. Um, just how important channel is and partnerships, who you partner with, who's traditionally a partner becoming competition in the context of DSTV, who I know you guys are really friendly with. But in the case of creating a VOD platform, technically a competitor as well. We'll talk about that as well. I want to come back to Dom and something you touched on, right? And we had a really candid discussion. Bring that, bring it on. Don't, don't, don't pull any punches. Because we had this incredible discussion about um, perhaps what's commonly misunderstood in terms of investability, right? What uh, separates a really good idea from perhaps uh, a, 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 a promising idea from perhaps an investable idea? And what would make it, uh, what would make your, your strike rate in terms of the businesses you've invested in, even here at your facility, so low despite what the nearly 100 businesses you've had come through your doors? So I've looked at a lot of deals. Yeah. <laughs> you alluded to the number. When, when I assess it, I think the problem is over 50% of the deals I've looked at fall on business model. And when I talk about business model, there's a couple of elements there. Often the issue is founding team. And what, what, what I mean by that is I see a lot of businesses that are one-man bands. Um, a business that is a one-man band is not a business. Um, and especially in the, in the South African market, um, there almost is often a reluctance for someone to bring in other people into the business, um, and then you don't have a business. So it, it fails there. The second thing is they don't have the correct composition of a founding team. So, for example, you find businesses that are very tech-led, and then they don't have business development. Um, or you see a business that maybe is because they're paying in financial services, they've got like a very strong banking or insurance arm, but then they've got no one overseeing the tech side, you know. And for me, it's a very dangerous thing. If you want to be a serious disruptor or you're trying to roll out a fintech, you can't outsource your dev. Maybe you can do that initially, but even outsourcing dev, you've got to have someone strong in there who's overseeing it. So that often fails. The second thing is I find a lot of them don't understand the realities of operating in the space. Now, obviously, financial services is a very particular one. You've really got to understand regulation. And it is, unfortunately, you cannot be a cowboy in the space. And the reason I say that is because in financial services, you will get shut down and you'll potentially face jail time. 
and that is something that people have to have an appreciation for. Our regulators... Jail's not, per, jail's not a place you want to be. <laughs> yeah. I don't know and what jail's like in Europe or America yeah. or wherever you're watching this, but uh, generally not somewhere you want to be on Africa. Yeah. So it's not just... Regu- regulation <laughs> is not just one of these little risks you've got to think about. Yeah. It is a very real a risk. Deal. And you've really got to understand that you are handling people's money and you've got to have a very deep respect for that. So I love the enthusiasm. I love guys coming into the space and saying, we really don't like how it's done and we're going to disrupt it. But, but you have to have a respect yeah. for the, 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 the sector that you're playing in. The second issue that we then come across is valuation. So we've got, um, you often find a great business, and then they come to me with Silicon Valley multiples. And I say, but we who are not... doesn't want $10 billion for sure. the idea? You know, and you've got to have a very deep appreciation for the market that you operate in. The South African market is, the number of people that have money in South Africa is relatively small. The margins are good there, but you're playing in a fiercely competitive market. And if we're talking about the rest of Africa, I mean, it's multiples less or in terms of the opportunities, in terms of the money you're chasing. But again, yeah. back to your point, Africa is not a country. Ah. So just because you are building... Just because you are building a fintech in South Africa does not mean you can take it into the rest of Africa. Because every African, especially in financial services, every African country is different. It is deeply complicated. And unless you have deep experience, and this comes from someone who comes out of a big African bank, it is incredibly difficult to take your fintech business that is doing well in South Africa into the rest of Africa unless you have world-class partners. Now, telling me that you've hired a country manager because it's someone that you met and you had a lack of beer with him, that does not qualify. <laughs> you know, so, He's lived in Kenya for a while. Yeah, it's lived in Kenya for a while and was lack of brew. Yeah. Um, in fact, your chances of success as a, as a good South African company, your chances of success of actually making it in a place like the UK and Australia is higher. And the reason I'll tell you that is because our financial services Services regulation is more similar to those countries than they are in the rest of Africa. Sure. So your market here, you've really got to understand your market dynamics. You've got to understand how long it's going to take. So what, what I come across a lot is you do find a good business, and then they come with some stupid multiple of what they want to apply to it. And they say, yeah, but that's what the Silicon Valley companies are coming up with. And I say, that's great. You're not in Silicon Valley. And then they tell me that this is the last capital raise they're going to do. And I go, no, no, your J-curve is going to be a lot deeper, and it's going to take you eight years to scale which talks to the other mindset is a lot of um, founders in this space don't have the 10-year mindset, mm. especially in financial services. I look at the companies that are in our portfolio. Adrian Gore Discovery, it's 25 years on, he's still the CEO. Philip Morris at Outsurance, it's 19 years on, he's still the CEO. Um, these are not businesses that you build and quickly flip. So those are some of the challenges we find in this market. Um, and it's, 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 look, I can only speak about fintech and financial services. It's the industry I know. Yeah. It's different in other industries, but that's the deep appreciation you have to have for it. And so, Daniel, um, I want you to compare and contrast your experience. In fact, did I say he's startup founder 2.0? It's actually startup founder 3.0 because there's one that doesn't get onto the bio. <laughs> it doesn't make it on the bio. Why? Because it failed. So, <laughs> sorry, I had to bring that up. No worries. <laughs> okay, so just drag out the failure. Okay, so so you failed at a fintech startup before your massive success with the re, with the with the traditional you know play in 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 real estate, right? What's so different now that you is, is, are you revisiting a, a, a dream, a long lost dream that you want to capture? Or and really, I'm I'm saying this tongue in cheek. My question to you really is compare and contrast. 
the context in which being a startup founder is either the same or different. When you first started, the one that failed, and in terms of the team you're now building with my treasury. What are some of the stark immediate difference? Give me one or two. So it's actually probably 5.0. Oh, my We'll change the intro next time. <laughs> Introducing Daniel Rubenstein, serial failure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mom won't be happy with you. She will not be yeah. happy. Okay, cool. So, so I think that, and this, this is, this is from, from my perspective, is that um, firstly, when I started my first business, I was 19, and I think it was a different mindset. I, I sort of had the mindset that Tom's speaking about, you know, that I was just going to go in there, I was going to build something and flip it out. It was at university, it was a book business, and in hindsight, I realized that I, I didn't have, um, I didn't persevere enough with it. I, I actually sold it, it was successful, but it actually, for me, it was a failure because I, ne- I wasn't able to scale it, and I was just interested in the quick money to survive and to live and, uh, you know, and someone, someone else bought it and basically used the distribution that I had built. Um, so, so one thing, the, the first thing is mindset and where you are at the time. Um, so that, that's the first sort of point. The other thing is, is, I mean, the biggest thing for me is perseverance. You know, you, you go into these businesses and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you deal with banks and you deal with other people that, Potential customers and their sales cycle and, and their, the, 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 for, to get a decision out of them, okay, can take a year, okay, and, you know, that's being polite, mm. okay, so, so you've got to, you've got to, you've got to be able to, um, you know, really persevere through that and find maybe one or two other angles, you know, where, where you can make money with your founding team. The third thing is, for me, the most important thing, is the team around you. So I actually think that it's, it's not really about the, I mean, you've got to have a good idea, but I've seen so many businesses and, and the ones that I've failed at, I had a great team and, um, but we didn't have the capital and we didn't have the, um, our backers just wouldn't, you know, keep giving. And is so, that stuff that you learned doing the, the one that succeeded? Are those all lessons yes. that you sort of, that you learned really well? Uh, and and well enough to succeed at something else. And and I think that it's it's not only the the fintech startup or you know even in the property business, we really had a great team. Okay, we, we had a we had a bit of capital and we had a great team. And well enough uh, to list. That's some. No, nah, well that's why you list because you don't have capital. Well, no, yeah. no, <laughs> no. Fair enough, but I I mean you have to be a substantial going concern though. We can get into that in a, yeah, in a, another okay. time, but okay, but, yeah. um, but basically we were very opportunistic and um, we, we took the, the gaps when we got them. I'll okay. leave it at that. Okay. But um, the, the idea is is that if you've got a strong team, you've got the will, and you've got the you got the ability to survive. Okay, I think that literally you can do anything. You can you can pivot to something else in the space. Okay, and as long as you can survive. Okay, and, and you can wait for a bank or someone to come back to you in two years' time, and and you can continue. You know, th- yeah. th- those are some of the things you've got to have patience. Yeah. You know, and but let me speak to something. A couple of things you said: survival. You've said perseverance. Um, you said you know teamwork. How are these things being taught by the innovation hub ecosystem we're seeing proliferate across the continent? Um, I know you are a member of a co, I mean, you're, you're a founder of a co-working space sort of syndicates across the continent. 
Um, I have a, I have an issue. I take issue with what I feel is the dumbing down of what it takes to succeed, right? And I feel like I don't know if these competitions and these ten thousand, sometimes one thousand dollar, you know, uh, 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 prizes and are teaching potential startup founders what they need to know about what actually needs to be done in order to succeed. And in some respect, I consider them a disservice to the ecosystem in as far as you know, turning turning uh, young people into serial um, competition winners and grant hunters and, do you get what I'm saying, and co-working sort of leeches, co-working space leeches. I'm sorry if any of you, uh, you know, fit that bill. Because <laughs> it got really quiet for a moment there. Now we've got an excellent audience here. Please trust me. This is just quality through and through, quality. But you, you, you take my point. You've got sight on this ecosystem's pipeline in a way that many people don't because of all the things you're involved in, not least your work with ABAN and other things. To speak to what I'm, what I'm asking, man. I think we have to unpack that a bit. I mean, yeah. so at VC for Africa, we talk about the path to success. And what we're really trying to figure out is, okay, you know, what are the ingredients that have to be built into the venture to know that it's going to be the breakaway, you know, that you want to be a part of? And the, actually the only thing that we can find that determines, you know, the degree of a company's performance is the team. If you've got a great team, that's basically the only indicator that's going to say that this company has a chance of, of making it big. And I think part of that, especially, you know, outside of, you know, if you're, Africa again, so diverse, so many different countries, it's really hard to make the generalizations and we, and we don't want to do that. But I think what you do see is that a lot of these businesses are facing, you know, lack of infrastructure, pieces of the infrastructure that in a sophisticated market, you know, a, a company could just plug into, plug and go. And in a lot of, you know, the cases that we see, there are pieces of that infrastructure that aren't there and that they have to basically overcome it. So it's an extra responsibility that it is coming onto the shoulders of the team. And only when you've got people who are sort of creative and just, you know, relentless at finding solutions and workarounds are you going to get the business model actually working. So, you know, the business model doesn't work. Well, the business model doesn't work because the infrastructure isn't there to facilitate it. So you have to be smart enough to find that that way around. And there are fundamental pieces missing in our ecosystem in as far as basic access to maybe, say, exactly. in the Internet or information, for example, that have to be plugged by certain things. I, I think I take your point. But, when we, yeah. but when we come to yeah. the lab yeah. discussion, yeah. the hubs, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, I think that's a complicated one because it's unfair for us as a, as a community to expect a one-stop shop. You know, one place where you go in and it's like, okay, teach me about, you know, uh, how to write a business plan. Teach me how to pitch. Teach me how to, you know, scale my business. Teach me how to, um, you know, raise a series A. Teach me how to, you know, uh, uh, grow my team, manage my human resources, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what you actually have is, is there's not enough depth in terms of of the offering for entrepreneurs and a lot of the labs and the hubs that you have now in, in again varies completely by city by country but what you have is is that first degree of support okay. if you're starting out and you've got ideas or you're trying to work on prototypes and demos you've got a community that you can go to where you can meet other people you can get feedback there are hackathons there's those sort of first pitch events, there's competitions. Where well, you, you might even get, meet a co-founder, for example. Sure. Okay. And, and, and getting, if you can't get 
you know, that first seed stage funding in Nairobi, there's a problem with your idea or with your team or, you know, that money is there. You can get it now in, in, in some of these cities. That's not, that's not the issue. Um, but what we hear from a lot of companies is that they've been through that. They've passed that now and they're ready for the next stage. They're ready for that next step. Uh, and, and so where is then, you know, the support structure uh, uh, to break that open? So like, right. for example, one of the programs I was telling you about uh, that we're launching is called Excel Africa. Uh, we're doing this in partnership with the InfoDev team at, at the World Bank. Uh, and, and the emphasis there is to say, okay, you know, where is that Series A market? Uh, let's go out, let's source the 20 best digital ventures from across the continent, pre-seed stage. They've already gone, you know, through that, um, you know, gearing up for Series A. Uh, let's identify these teams. We're going to bring them. Uh, we're working with uh, uh, Coltai & Co., which is a, a, basically a top-level, you know, advisory uh, a firm out of the U.S., uh, you know, experts at, at deal structuring. They're going to be working with these teams to actually help them uh, prepare for that kind of conversation. Uh, and then we have a two-week residency in Cape Town where the teams are coming together, and, and it will be in conjunction with the fourth uh, uh, African uh, Investor Summit, um, where so it kind of sounds like plumbing to me, where it's like you've got view of this pipeline and you see where the blockages are, where the leaks are, and you guys are trying to go about going, okay, so we've got this part you know, sorted out. Let's work on the next bit of the pipeline, or maybe let's build a, a, a slightly wider one. Right. Oh, heck, you know, what's coming through the pipes change. Let's re-engineer the pipe. Is, is that the kind of thinking that we need to have in terms of like engineering hubs and co-working spaces and... Uh, clubs like Alpha Code. We need to be thinking strategically in terms of, okay, what screw do I need to apply to this pipe? Do we need, do I need to help redesign it? What value am I adding to the ecosystem as a whole? I think that's the thinking maybe we need to have. Yesterday we, you know, at the, uh, um, at the stock exchange, Johannesburg uh, stock exchange, uh, uh, the African Business Angels uh, Network organized a, a breakfast session where we had invited angel uh, leaders of, of different angel communities from across the continent to come together. Uh, we had representation from Niger, uh, Mauritius, uh, Kenya, uh, uh, Nigeria, uh, uh, literally from across the continent. We had 50-plus people uh, together. And I was there, by the way. In addition to that, there was like $6.4 billion worth of angel investment represented through the European Business Angel Network. All their top dogs were there, too. So what was fun was they were actually all on the outside. There was this big boardroom table. Oh, man, it felt like... The Apprentice or something. So there's this boardroom table. I'm sorry, I have to set the scene. So this boardroom table, all the Africans are at the table, like how that felt. Um, so they were all, all these angel investors and serious players within uh, around the table. And then on the outside, there was us, the media, and, uh, and all these other spectators to our scene, um, like listening to these amazing conversations that I rarely ever had. And in that context, okay, so I've set the scene. Well, so now that, you know where we are. That, that just okay. wasn't possible two years ago. Yeah. And it's a response because they're now companies. They're now great companies, great founders, and syndicates, teams and that are building angels stuff. that are getting to, beginning to to right. participate jointly, beginning to, to to own the space in a way that maybe they hadn't done before. So we always say, you know, uh, is the problem, you know, a lack of money? No, the money is there, and and the money shows up when when there's a place to put it, when there's a place to invest it. Yeah. And so the angel, the rise of sort of the angel movement that we're seeing now across the continent is a direct response to the quality of the teams and the propositions that are now coming up. Right. And so, you know, with the XL Africa program where we're trying, you know, bringing 20 companies, gearing them up for Series A, it's because 
the quality is there, and now the investor community has to respond. So I want I want to sp I want uh, we're so running out of time, and I've got a million questions I want to ask, but I have to limit myself. Discipline, Andile, discipline. Okay. So there was something that came up in that very meeting that I'd like to put to you, Dom. Um, actually, it was someone from the South African Business Angels Network who piped up about this, and I hadn't thought about it in, in such an interesting way. How expensive it is to actually raise up the to raise to basically grow an entrepreneur with a great idea and perhaps a decent personality and mindset to like a a really strong operator in a in a business context like i'd never thought about it in terms of how expensive it might be and now in the context of knowing that you've seen a hundred businesses and only invested in one and it occurs to me given what i know is spent on this facility how expensive it must be to actually raise the quality, not just of thinking, but of the quality of execution and mindset and all that. Speak to how costly it might be and some of the things we might not consider in terms of like getting someone ready for the big time. To me, and this is the one thing that I, I think I always try to give guidance on, is that I think it's wonderful if young people embrace this entrepreneurship journey. I mean, I, I would never discourage that. The thing is, though, if you really want to build a business, you need to have come from business. I think that's what we've seen. The people that have, have really been able to build um, extraordinary businesses have generally had some business experience. And I just think about myself is that, you know, if you've just, if you're coming straight out of university or straight out of school and you have ambitions of being a great entrepreneur, where's your network? You know, so the things that you were talking about plugging into the pipeline, if you haven't worked in a company, how do you know that you need a financial manager? How do you know that you need a marketer? How do you know people who to speak to? And I think that's what people maybe need to get their heads around is that before you are the uber entrepreneur, you need to have had a little bit of business experience. And that doesn't mean you have to go work in a corporate, but it might be that you have to go join a startup yourself and be guided and Like be you mentored. did, actually, right? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I suppose, like, you always colored by your own experience, yeah. but the people that I've seen who've done a phenomenal job of building great businesses, like Dorvid Merchant Capital, for example, some of the really strong ones that we have in our stable in Alpha Code, so, for example, Cameron Stevens at Prodigy Finance, which is now a big global fintech that's coming out of Cape Town, or Skulk Nolta at Intersect, which is has built global leading edge technology. I just, I think without that business backing, how do you know how to build a business? Not everyone is Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. You know, and the U.S. is a very different... I was just thinking of him. I was sure. just thinking there are probably people going, wait, some people quit Varsity and they just did the thing. What's she talking about? Great, but if we had a look at the stats, how many Mark Zuckerbergs are there? Well, there's, there's kind of one. Yeah, there's kind of one. <laughs> there's kind of one, yeah. So, you know, people kind there's of... Yeah, okay. people kind of look at the investment community and they're like, you're so harsh on startups and why aren't you investing in more? But the burden can't sit purely on us. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think, especially if I look in South Africa, Africa, you know, corporate South Africa is really starting to come to the party. You know, you've got the initiative of the SME fund being launched. You've got the Rand Merchant Stable who set up things like Alpha Code. You've got Barclays investing in Techstars, etc. But, you know, my view on these incubator programs or these accelerator programs, you can't learn to be a great entrepreneur in three months. Yeah. You can maybe get you know, guided to certain meet somebody tools. or something. You can meet yeah, someone. Yeah. Um, but to really understand the fundamentals of business work in a business yeah. fail at five or less <laughs> or more <laughs> I'm kidding. so you know in wrapping this up really i have a question for you and then general comments to close right uh, something we talked about in terms of mobile and uh 
the interesting position you might be in, you know, running the business you're in. And in context to the legacy business that Trace has already built. Incredible relationships, Olivier. Like in the media space, which, which I, I know well and love. And I follow like quite ardently, like what Olivier has achieved in terms of his partnership, like his deal making prowess, you know, in, in able, in being able to like bring big people to the table. Cause in context, I mean, Trace, right? I mean, let's not get, this is no Time Warner situation. I mean, the, they're still relatively small in context, right? And, but man, the, 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 you guys punch way above your weight in a sense. And it's what I think is interesting is how some of the startup energy that you need to have in order to survive the next chapter of the future, whatever that looks like, requires you to renegotiate those relationships and in some cases take on partners as competition or reevaluate contracts or see where you could, you know what I mean, you know, or, or be viewed in, with suspicion, whereas before you guys were just part of you know, making us great in the case of maybe your relationship with DSTV. Now it's like, wait, are you guys taking us on? You know, I don't know. So t- talk to me about the complexity of starting up in the context of having that legacy. The relationships are there, right? Um, we, l- let's speak about DSTV for a second. We're not in direct competition with DSTV. How we're, so? We, How so? We are, School uh, me. We're a, co- we're a complimentary service. Okay. Right? Uh, the content that DSTV can procure, we can't. With the buying power that they have, we can't, right? So we, we're not here from a, from a VOD point of view to actually compete to the likes of Showmax and Netflix or DSTV or any of those brands. We purely want to serve a complimentary service. Am I living in right? a future where you could, though? I mean, I could totally see, I could totally see Trace being, is it Trace, iFlix, which is about to come, Showmax, Netflix, I could see, I can see people going, I'll go with Trace. Yes, and, and that depends on what type of content that you have and what yeah. type of content you're procuring. Uh, we're not procuring blockbusters from Hollywood. That's not the type of co- uh, content that we want to procure. We want to procure content that is niche to a certain segment. Okay. Right? We want to ident- we identify that segment and we want to empower that segment only. So you're kind of like us with, with the African Tech Roundup where, I mean, we could yeah. technically cover a whole range of African issues because there's, there's not enough voices talking about most things on the continent, but we've decided to go with Correct. African tech and innovation. So that's exactly okay. what we try to do. Okay. The thing is, we don't have the buying power of your bigger players out there. And before you know it, we'll be dead in the water if we try to do that. Is there something to being humble to what's achievable without partnering with scale? Because that's an interesting idea that I think is relevant to my treasury in the context of anything you're trying to do. I'm sure you've observed how great startups tend, you know, I don't know, maybe your data might point to great startups partnering with with existing scale players. I'm sure as a legacy player yourself, you'll argue that, listen, guys, let's partner. We've got things you we've got we've got things and access and resources you'll never have on your best day. And so maybe you need to be thinking about yourself in context and partnership in a way that maybe like you're saying. hundred oh, percent. Is that I mean, what you're talking that's about? That's exactly it. Okay. Um, you know, those relationships and those trade partner deals and so forth come into play. Yeah. And, so you, that, and that's you have how to be you'll survive. To that. Yeah. Correct. And you, you scrunched your face a little when I pointed at you. You're like, well. I so actually think to be a successful business, you have to have laser life focus. So remember from, from an alpha code perspective, we're actually looking at businesses that can scale in their own right. So the philosophy of this group is that disruption comes from the outside. 
You know, so we're not looking to try get a business that can plug into F and B or can plug into outsurance. Yeah. We're saying who can be the next outsurance. So why was outsurance so successful? Because they were laser-like focused on delivering direct short-term insurance. Why was Discovery so successful? Because they hinged their entire delivery on vitality. They didn't do it because they did a big partnership with F and B. Um, I actually think, I mean, Uber is not successful because they did a big partnership with Google. Um, I actually think the key to success is to being laser-like focused and trying to deliver, deliver something that customers really, really, really love yeah. and focusing on growing that. Yeah. Um, and Trace kind of ticks both boxes in a sense because you're so focused. Like, um, you know, I, I, you can speak to young people below the age of 25. And, and I mean, they get it. They're like, no, Trace is our thing, right, on some level. And then on the flip side, you also know enough to know the power of your independence and the fact that on their best day, a DSTV or anybody couldn't replicate that in, in a way. And, and so there's a laser-like focus in terms of that. So, folks, listen, I'm going to open it up now. Um, I want us to get some uh, – Oop, I see our, our fireside chat. Don't look, Kawa. I want to keep it a surprise. Our fireside chat individual is in the building. So, yes, people want to spoil things. So, guys, um, please, any questions, comments? Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Bola Lawal. <clears throat> I'm from Texas. Um, my startup, I'm one of those diaspora entrepreneurs. My startup actually covers Africa. We launched in Lagos, in Nigeria, and we are now still launching Ghana. So we are a scholarship platform, web and mobile that helps African students discover scholarships to study across the globe. Now, so my question is AirTech, the crossroads of FinTech because funding for quality education is a big problem. But we also know that trying to get, say, for instance, if you find, can't find a scholarship, what about trying to get a loan or lend, lending to young people? So my question, it's kind of a trend of, you know, we have all these different FinTech startups you know, is anything moving towards people trying to target young people with lending, funding for school, and stuff like that? Dom, do you see anything in fintech that's addressing this need? There is actually, a, it's actually one that's part of our stable called Prodigy Finance. Um, they're a phenomenal business, and we're very proud of them because they're a global fintech that started in Cape Town. Um, and their model is really interesting. So what they do is they provide postgraduate finance. So this is for, and they focus on emerging markets. So for example, this is someone from Nigeria or from India or from South Africa who's been accepted to go to a Harvard or an Oxford or a Cambridge. Um, and having gone through this myself, it's impossible to get financing because, um, a bank here won't finance you. If you land in the UK, HSBC won't finance you. And their view on it is they, they view your credit as someone who's got an MBA from Harvard. It doesn't matter what they do later in life, they, they're credit worthy, right? So they look at your future potential and they've developed a really interesting they can collect cross-border across 150 countries. So they've got the collection me mechanism and enforceability. Um, and they're an example of a business they've been going for over eight years and they're now gaining really serious traction. And that's an example of a really disruptive business um, because it's a part of them. And they're now starting to move outside of just like MBAs and stuff and they're moving into postgraduate um, studies for engineering, for law, um, things that especially the emerging markets really, really, really need. We need to be able to, we've got such amazing talent in these markets, we need to be able to send them to world-class universities and we need to bring them back home. Um, so that's an amazing business. Check it out, Prodigy Finance. We're really proud of them. Okay. You want to say something? Well, maybe it's also an opportunity to leapfrog again. 
where you don't have to build all kinds of very expensive institutions across the African continent to educate people for a, a huge sums of money. Where in the US, you know, the conversation is about we don't need universities anymore, right? Some people expect e-learning, virtual learning experiences to be maybe the largest industry of the future. Uh, and, and now with, you know, just access to internet, you can take courses at MIT if you want from, from your couch. Um, so I, I do think that there's a need to provide, you know, content that is contextualized um, and, and is delivered for, you know, for the audience that, that you know, that, 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 that needs it. But um, there's all kinds of opportunities there um, that would potentially give all, the, you know, these young people access to the education that they need without having to give every single one of them a loan and, and saddle them with a lifetime of debt. And you might have heard the cheeky phrase, the future doesn't care how you became an expert. <laughs> so maybe things gonna change. <laughs> all right. Hi, my name is Sandras. I'm the chapter director for Startup Grind, Johannesburg and Lusaka. Um, my question is, uh, any of you could take it. It's on the feeling that I get most of the entrepreneurs across the continent of it's either you're trying to raise money or trying to run your business. So you get some who are trying to raise money to win pitches and stuff and they're known, but they're not making any money. And the others who opt to just be quietly grinding and making some money. Is it always an either or, or is it like you're trying to get money from <laughs> wrong funders? Or what advice would you have for founders? So I want, I'd like, uh, uh Daniel to answer this question because I, maybe let's shape it this way. How much time are you spending at my treasury actually working on your business versus how much time you're spending looking for funding for the next step? So um, at my treasury, we, we're lucky we we at a stage now where we don't need capital, okay, at the moment, but we will. <laughs> now, our, our podcast audience didn't see my face fall because I'm like, oh, my word, listed business, <laughs> next step, my treasury, this huge success. No, no, he no. had five failures, so okay, fine. No, no, no. You're one of us. You're no, one of us no, still. No. Okay, cool. But, but yeah. having said that, I mean, in, in all the other businesses, yeah. and, and we will come to that point, Soon. Is it either or? Though? It's, it's it not either. Or? I think part of being a startup is that you know, firstly, I mentioned the team. You've got to have a good team around you that guys have different skills, and and you're able to um, go and raise money while operating the business. And it's it's actually a skill that's required in a startup, you know, to survive. I mean, that's one of the most important skills is that you need to be able to you need to be a bit ADD, mm. you know, you need to be about you need to be able to multitask and. Um, and really, yeah, it's it's one of the the, the biggest skills to it's like business development yeah. meets someone who knows when to pivot, who knows when to try something new, who knows when to. Oh, you are hustling in the background, right? You're still going, hustling away. But you want to say something, Don? Yeah. Then the unfortunate thing is, it's not just a startup phenomenon. The minute you're in business, you're permanently thinking about your capital structure. It's not something that goes away. Um, I think in your early days, you hustling. As you get a bit bigger, you structuring, and then later you optimizing. It is a skill that you well put. permanently adopt. So unless you understand how to fund your business and you're permanently thinking about it, don't get into that function of your business. But it is something you need to understand upfront, and it never goes away. And I can tell you from the companies that we look at, you know, big ones in our stable, Discovery, Outsurance, First Rand, it is something that is discussed at every board meeting. Are we optimizing capital structure? Yeah, never goes away. Cool. Thank you, Andile. 
My name is Lamela Neuswani. I am, I think of myself as a software developer, but I'm, I'm a product manager. I work for Barclays Capital. Um, and also studying my MBA through Oxford University, funded by Prodigy. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, my question is, you guys have touched a lot on financial services in Africa, but what kind of impact do you think startups are having on agriculture, specifically uh, just in the rest of Africa, not, not necessarily South Africa? Ben, you've got eyes on this maybe? Well, so what we're seeing now is, is actually the convergence of different technologies around traditional problems that has you know, huge potential and huge interest. So to give you an example, You've got all of these telecom you know, towers that are basically spread out across the continent. So that's infrastructure that's there. What's great about those telecom uh, towers is that there's also a power facility. Uh, and so then some entrepreneur comes along and says, well, you know, actually what we could do is we could take a weather station and we could attach it to each one of those towers. And then we could start to map you know, basically data real time on a local level. Uh, and then what you can do with that data is incredible, right? You can feed it back to farmers through SMS mobile uh, updates to, you know, here's your weather forecast, here's what's happening. Um, you could uh, provide that data to uh, fertilizer and, and other type companies um, that are servicing the agricultural sector and are trying to get a sense of the weather patterns, uh, what's happening in particular areas and how their products can help farmers, um, you know, optimize their yield. Uh, at the same time, that data can go to insurance uh, industry uh, so that they can better assess the risks and then tailor their products uh, to offer, um, you know, these communities a very specific solutions. Um, so this is, you know, very simple thinking that has, you know, huge uh, application uh, and, and massive potential, really. So I think you're starting to see more and more of this, where it's like telecoms, it's, you know, it's fintech. Um, it's big data, uh, and then the combinations of these things is, is just making a whole lot of new things possible. And I think not just in the rest of Africa, locally, I mean, we just saw a big deal that was announced last week where AFCRI has bought the South African Bank of Athens, and they're launching a very big play to take on Land Bank, and it's very much technology-driven. They've launched a new platform which allows for real-time commodity pricing, and they're looking to optimize the entire supply chain and to provide smaller farmers in South Africa with visibility and transparency. So we are starting to see uh, people take the agricultural industry very seriously locally as well. So that's a really exciting deal for the country, I think. And I know uh, companies like MasterCard and SAP, having you know, spoken to the, many of the members of their C-suite recently, uh, are huge in the agritech space right now. Their concern, or one of their sort of, uh, uh, what they're obsessing about at the moment is helping the really small, who's the person who's currently subsisting, so we're talking just a few hectares or less, uh, participate more meaningfully economically. So give a, a, a farmer that small the power to project, you know, income, to project revenue, to 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 start to chart a way forward in terms of, you know, in terms of yields and participate meaningfully. So Mastercard, you see, doing that, I think, is a a product called Tukuze that's going to help them do that in East Africa. SAP is working really, really feverishly on uh, on software that's going to not just empower the big players, uh, you know, the upstream who obviously want to optimize the system for for their gain, but the small player who can now participate and hopefully get more power or a, a more balance of power. So you're seeing a lot of interesting things happening as a result of 
sheer fear on a, on the on the side of financial on the finan- of the financial industry that they could miss out on this big democratization of agriculture and so they want to participate for that reason and then you're seeing people who want to do it for social reasons for example who want to see our farmers actually you know have what they own and what they produce mean a lot more than will they buy maybe at what price you know that kind of thing so that's what i've observed personally as well yeah anyone else yes I think we'll make this our last one. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, definitely two last ones, okay? Because we we're having so much fun, but we we need to ca- we need to get like a, 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 a sort of coffee break going, quick ten minutes, and get into our fireside chat, which I'm looking forward to. Name, sir. Hi, my name is Mbulelo, and I'm working in the insurance technology space. So I've got a question around regulation and how you guys have interacted with regulators. Um, so. One of our advisors had um, interaction with the FSB, so in insurance space, it's quite regulated. And uh, um, the question was, what is the regulation around insurance technology companies? Because there's no mention of them in any of the regulations. And the initial response was, well, they have to pick. And in insurance, you actually regulated around what type of model you're allowed to follow, what sort of interactions you're allowed to have, and that affects your margins. And um, you know, and then another conversation, they then said they're starting to look at it. And I guess for us, we already exist, you know, and we can't really two, three years down the line wait for that sort of thing. Um, so what sort of advice would you have? So, you know, looking at the U.S., they sort of try and force the, the, the issue by just running the business. Um, yeah, so what, what advice would you have? Okay, so this is definitely a dumb one. But before yeah. you answer dumb, I, I think this is also interesting because of your mobile background and how this is new, right, in a sense, Right, you, you, there's a traditional broadcasting environment, and there's everything digital is bringing in terms of changing that environment and re- and regulations that come with it. Have you had any challenges in terms of creating a business model based on things that are clearly going to shift going forward? I know we've got like the the Protection of Data Privacy Act about to be you know to be, to be enacted here in South Africa. How do you sort of stay on top of legislative changes, regulatory changes, and how does that if affect the way you do business and make money? It will essentially you know affect your margins. Well, I think in terms of the mobile or te- telecoms regulations, from an ICASA point of view, um, no, I mean those are set regulations. Um, you know, so it's quite it's quite different. It's Is it a bad quite, example? It's quite different okay. in terms of what you're speaking of. Uh, we have to follow certain regulations, or the networks have to follow certain regulations. And, and you fall in line? Compli- and we fall in line. And if you don't comply, you know, there's either fines or, or penalties involved. Okay. All right. Then, Dom, hit him with the, the fintech-specific question then in terms of how do you stay alive? Um, you've got this amazing idea, great team, regulations changing all the time. So what the most to? important thing is always be on the front foot of the regulator. That's the first piece of guidance I ever give. If the, the regulator doesn't like to be surprised. And I think that's, I mean, that's certainly our approach here, is we always say more engagement with the regulator is better than less. Um, our regulator in South Africa in particular does not like to be surprised. So surprise, we're Uber, we're here, they don't like that. Remember, Uber is not regulated by our financial services No, regulator. I just mean sure. in terms of the approach, right? Yeah. Using Uber as an example yeah. of we're here, deal with it. Yeah. Okay. Our, like our SAAB and um, the FSB do not like surprises, so okay. more engagement is better. Okay. I think the best example we have at the moment is Bitcoin. So I look at companies like Luno, formerly Bitex. Our reserve bank does not know what Bitcoin is. They don't know if it's a currency. They don't know if it's a technology. I mean, regulators around the world are grappling with this. But, I mean, Marcus Swanepoel from Luno is engaging with the Saab on 
I mean, almost sometimes a monthly basis to help them grapple with it. Because for him, for his business, if the regulator, he needs to help the regulator think through these issues because he's creating an industry. And that is the correct approach. Um, so I, especially in this fintech space, engage with the regulator, talk to the regulator, take the regulator through it in a way that they can understand it. And if you don't have someone in your team doing that, then maybe you need someone in your team who is doing that. Who is respected by the regulator. I mean, I know from the pre my previous business at time, that was how we approached it. We were the first people to use the something called General Notice 6 on mass. And our compliance officer was someone who had come from the South African Reserve Bank, because that's the other thing. You need someone who knows how to navigate those corridors. And I always say that our biggest asset there was probably, uh, we called it regulatunity. We understood regulation. Because that makes sense. Well, it was regulation <laughs> innovation. You yes, can regulate yeah. around yeah. it, as yeah. long as you have someone who knows how to have those conversations. Okay. Well, last question. Uh, thank you, guys. My name is Bruce. Uh, you guys touched on strategy, and I'm talking to the rose among the thorns. And the, and the man from Trace. Please allow me to read. Now, when you were talking about strategy, you mentioned that uh, you guys need to, uh, that, that the startups need to be close to the, to the customer, find out what the customer needs, and then deliver on that. But doesn't that sort of push you guys to a space where you have to become all things to all people compared to what Southwest Airlines did, where they chose a specific target market, which is what I think Trace is doing, choosing a specific target market and choosing benefits to offer those guys specifically. If they want anything outside of that, then they better go to someone else. But if they want what we have to offer, then they come to us. Isn't that, isn't that a better way to look at strategy? Yep. I think from a mobile point of view, um, the networks do well in producing mass market products, and they talk to the masses out there. It's, you know, the smaller branded resellers or the so-called MVNOs that you like to call it, they specifically choose the niche markets, and that is how their business and their business model MVNOs standing for? Mobile Virtual Network Operators. Right. Similar to what we have in the country like FNB Connect right today through CLC, and then your Virgin Mobile that launched. And they sell SIM ago. cards through to a niche Correct. group of people, i.e. their customers or subscribers. So if you look at the, at the MVNO model, um, and, and through Celsius platform, the MVNO platform, you can see that the likes of FNB Connect has launched an MVNO. The likes of Mr. Price has launched an MVNO. You have people like me and you, Boxcell, and Funskype that launched recently. These are all niche markets that they target. For example, Mr. Price. Mr. Price targeted their account customers. Right? Because they want to offer a full 360 degree service. FNB has done the same. They want to target their banking customers because they want to move more customers using the app than rather going into a branch. And are these decisions, so, you know, these are business decisions. These are business right? decisions yeah. in yeah. terms of how to make their business more efficient, right? Based on the market as Based well. On the market. And we know that everybody is moving towards a smartphone, uh, space, right? Or, and internet is everybody's on the internet. So why have branches opened when people can do banking on their phones? So that's basically what we from Trace also want to do. We want to target, or we're targeting a specific market. We're not a mass market channel. Uh, yes, and a lot of people watch us, but mm. our content is purely urban. That's who we are. Right. Did you have the thought? No, I mean, especially in financial services and fintech, you better understand who your early adopters are going to be and develop a product that those customers will love. 
identify, have laser-like focus on who your target market is. I mean, the examples that I've spoken about today, people like Prodigy Finance, they knew exactly who their target market was, people who'd been accepted to an MBA at Cambridge or at Oxford or at Harvard. You know, companies like Merchant Capital, which we've invested in, they knew that their target customers were Sorbet franchise owners and Spur franchise owners because they knew they would love their product. Um, it, is, it is incredibly important in a startup that you have laser-like focus on a target market and that you are talking to those customers regularly before you scale. That's as good a place as any to end it, right? Oh, my word. Guys, one last time, please help me thank uh, Andresen Chetty of uh, Trace, MD of Trace Mobile. <laughs> Dominique Collett of Rand Merchant Investments, as well as AlphaCode. Come on, give it up, give it up, keep it going. We've got Ben White of VC for Africa and African Business Angels Network. Come on, give it up, give it up. And of course, our serial entrepreneur, <laughs> Ben Rubenstein, co-founder of My Treasury. And thank you to our studio audience. Uh, guys, we'll be back in exactly 10 minutes. I've got someone really, really exciting for you to listen to. You know. Hey, 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 a huge thank you to our State of the Startup panelists, Andresen Chetty of Trace Mobile, Dominique Collett of Rand Merchant Investments, Ben White of BC for Africa, as well as Daniel Rubenstein of My Treasury. Thank you so much for making our 100th episode a true kicker. And folks, that's pretty much it for this week. I look forward to having you join me again next week on africantechroundup.com. I'll be sharing that fantastic fireside chat that I had with the marketing maverick author and entrepreneur that is Musa Kalinga. In the meantime, though, do follow us on Twitter and Instagram at African Roundup, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. In fact, We've just recently posted a video with highlights from the State of the Startup event. It's definitely worth checking out. Uh, head to our Facebook and our Twitter for that. Uh, and of course, keep those emails coming. We love to hear from you. The address is hello at africantechroundup.com. But for now, folks, I'm Andile Masugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa.